It was April of 1862, and the war was just about to enter its second year. The beginning of that year had been a bleak one for the Confederacy. In February, Fort Henry, Roanoke Island, North Carolina, and Fort Donelson all fell. Now there were invasion routes into the old North State, the interior of Tennessee, and the very heartland of the Confederacy. In the first week of March, Missouri was, for all practical purposes, lost to the Confederacy thanks to Union victory at Pea Ridge. In the East, more cause for Southern concern. The ironclad USS Monitor had revolutionized naval warfare and neutralized the Confederacy's CSS Virginia. And George B. McClellan finally stirred from his slows to land 121,000 men on the Virginia Peninsula with its sights on Richmond. Though there had been all these military events, there were still some, North and South, who believed that particularly if the Southern capital fell, the conflict would soon end. In fact, a year earlier, A.W. Venable of Granville County, North Carolina, declared that he would wipe up every drop of blood shed in the war with this handkerchief of mine. Naive words. In his most vivid and terrible nightmares, he never dreamed of two days like April 6th and 7th, 1862. Neither had an entire nation. Two horrific days that churned and burned near a river landing and a little Methodist church built for the Prince of Peace. Two bloody days that served as a national wake-up call, a call that announced the sobering reality of how terrible civil war would truly be. This is the story of those two days. This is the story of the Battle of Shiloh. The last five letters of history spell story, and that's exactly how history should be taught. Numbers and dates have no soul. Such presentations fall flat, for history is alive and relevant. Welcome to Threads from the National Tapestry, stories from the American Civil War. This series will feature events and people from that period and will strive to make you feel as if you were there, to show that history is indeed a story. Before we begin, a note to our listeners. This episode will be filled and carried by first-person accounts from men and officers who were there those two days. Please be aware that some of their experiences will be graphic in nature. Down at a place on the west bank of the Tennessee River, at a site known locally as Pittsburgh Landing, the Federal Army of the Tennessee lay encamped across a rolling countryside punctuated by blossoming peach trees and wild flowers which heralded the arrival of spring. U.S. Grant's army was relaxed, confident. Why not? For it had captured Forts Henry and Donelson back in February and now waited for the arrival of Major General Don Carlos Buell's Army of the Ohio. Once united, the combined force would march some 20 miles south to Corinth, Mississippi, where Confederate General Albert Sidney Johnston's Confederate Army, after repeated reversals, had retreated. Down in northeastern Mississippi, Johnston received a telegraph from his friend and president, Jefferson Davis. Despite all the reversals, its message was simple. I expect victory. Nine miles north of the Union camp at Pittsburgh Landing, on the eastern bank of the Tennessee at a place known as Savannah, the commander of the Army of the Tennessee made his headquarters at the William C. Cherry Mansion. He was a simple man. So were his culinary tastes. No sauces, no dressings. For breakfast, he enjoyed cucumbers that had been soaked in vinegar. Unable to stand the sight of blood, his meat had to be well done. There at Savannah, he worried little about what the enemy might do, but his department commander, Henry Halleck, thought Grant reckless and did worry. Grant liked to seize initiative. 
He liked boldness, like his demand for unconditional surrender at Fort Donelson, which made him a national hero. At 39 years of age, he stood only about 5, 6, or 7, and weighed only about 138 pounds. To many who knew of his humble beginnings and pre-war string of bad luck, he seemed a most unlikely hero. As one northern journalist put it, how profoundly surprised Mrs. Grant must have been when she woke up and learned that her husband was a great man. Yet, despite many who believe Grant was in over his head, he and Flag Officer Andrew Foote had, at Forts Henry and Donelson, given Abraham Lincoln his first major victories of the war. And yet, for the 16th president, it was a personally bittersweet time. For only four days after the news that Fort Donelson had fallen, his son Willie died at 5.30 in the morning of February the 20th from what we believe was typhoid fever. And yet, though personally devastated, the war rolled on and Mr. Lincoln wanted to press his Western advantage. Indeed, by early April, Jefferson Davis and his Confederate forces in the West were reeling. As we mentioned earlier, Johnston's army had fallen back and concentrated at Corinth. The town held strategic importance. There, the Mobile and Ohio Railroad ran north to south, and the Memphis and Charleston Railroad ran east to west, both, if you will, backbones for the Confederacy. To add muscle to Johnston's force, Confederate troops were called in from Memphis, Mobile, Pensacola, and New Orleans. Regardless of the reinforcements, an undaunted and confident U.S. Grant bided his time, waited for Buell, and once united, planned to make a drive on Corinth. And so, his army sprawled across the rolling landscape from Pittsburgh Landing, a steamboat docking point named for Pitts Tucker, who had had a small cabin and from it sold hard liquor. Above the landing, atop bluffs that rose some 80 to 200 feet above the river, there were several cabins. Camped around and about them, Grant's six divisions totaled 39,830 men and officers. Three and a half of the six divisions had seen action at Henry and Donelson. The rest were green. With little concern about the enemy, they had not entrenched, and with few outposts had little means for proper patrolling. Their commander was so confident of victory that in a recent letter to his wife, Grant wrote, Secesh is about on its last legs in Tennessee. A big fight, it appears to me, will be the last in the West. And so his army sat, waiting for Buell's 25,255. Not far away, there was a Methodist meeting house. It was called Shiloh. It meant a place of peace. Yet Albert Sidney Johnston decided to make the area a place of bloody confrontation. Quite honestly, he had to. The coming engagement he planned was critical for the Confederacy. One, the two railroads that ran through Corinth were vital and had to be protected. And two, he knew that central and western Tennessee and the Cumberland Gap area in eastern Tennessee and Kentucky had to be retaken. He had the military bearing of one who might seem to do whatever he wanted to. He was 59 years of age. He stood over six feet. With blue-gray eyes, hair streaked with gray, and sporting a large mustache, he was quite aware he was under great pressure to regain what had been lost on his watch as commander of the Confederacy's Western Military Department. His second-in-command was also of note. 43-year-old Pierre Gustave Toton Beauregard was the hero of Fort Sumter in Manassas. Second in his West Point class of 1845, the former superintendent of the military academy was one of the most well-known soldiers of the day. Of Johnston and Beauregard's three corps, one, the second, was under Major General Braxton Bragg. Cantankerous, 
He was 45 years old and hailed originally from Warrington, North Carolina. I use the word cantankerous, so much so that during the Mexican War, a bomb was placed under his cot by his own men. It failed, but that did not save him from a second attempt, which also failed. His wife, it appears, was just as stern as he. On the topic of recent Confederate reversals, she wrote that if the Southern soldiers continue to behave so disgracefully, we women had better take the field and send them home to raise chickens. As to derelict Southern commanders, she maintained that they should be hanged or shot. In Corinth, his second corps numbered 14,568. Adding the 1st and 3rd Corps and a reserve, Albert Sidney Johnston's Army of the Mississippi totaled 43,968 officers and men. A significant number, but probably 80% had never fired a gun in anger. 20 miles to the north of Grant's six divisions, his 2nd was under Ohioan Brigadier General William Harvey Lamb Wallace. Forty years old, he was not a West Pointer, but he did serve in the Mexican War as a volunteer. At Fort Donelson, he commanded a brigade and did so so capably he was promoted to division command. Early in March, he wrote his wife, Anne, to let her know that he had been quite ill for several days. In that same letter, he expressed how much he wanted the war to be over, how much he missed her and their children. The message touched her. And so, against the advice of friends and relatives, and without informing her husband, she headed south to hopefully meet up with him. Grant's 5th Division was under recently resurrected Brigadier General William T. Sherman. Now 42 years of age, he, back in 1859, had been superintendent of Louisiana State Seminary of Learning and Military Academy, today LSU. When Civil War came, he capably commanded a brigade at First Bull Run, and soon thereafter found himself in Kentucky, where he was asked to keep the state within the Union fold. There, under great stress and strain, he waged war with soldiers and civilians alike. It was all too much, and he suffered a mental breakdown. Major General Don Carlos Buell relieved him, but in St. Louis, Henry Halleck took Sherman under his wing and helped to rebuild his confidence. At Pittsburgh Landing, his 5th Division was encamped on the extreme southern perimeter, where it and he would be sorely tested. Grant's last division, the 6th, was under Brigadier General Benjamin Mayberry Prentice. He was 42 weighed 240 pounds, and his ancestry stretched back to a passenger aboard the Mayflower. Born in what is now West Virginia, he, as a young man, moved west. He served in the Mexican War and afterwards became an attorney and was a Republican candidate for Congress in the 1860 elections. The following April, he was named a colonel of the 10th Illinois Four months later, he was made a Brigadier General of Volunteers. Yes, another political general. There were many who criticized him for that. Few, if any, would do so after his performance in the coming battle. With Buell's eventual addition, there would be nine federal divisions, and like the majority of Johnston's Confederate force, five and a half of the Union divisions were untested, and unprepared for combat. It is important to repeat the Union situation. Grant's army was sprawled across the rolling land on the west bank of the Tennessee. Scattered, they had no semblance of a defensive line, no entrenchments, and lacked provisions for outposting or patrol. And their commander's headquarters was nine miles downstream and on the opposite bank. Yet, for the common soldier, Few, if any, officers showed concern, so they followed their lead. They relaxed in the mild weather. It all seemed so simple. Wait for Buell's army. 
march 20 miles south to corinth and then pound a dispirited confederate army end of secesh in the west yet there were a few who did not share the complacency one was colonel jesse appler colonel of the 53rd ohio who warned Sherman on April the 5th that he believed just to the south was a large Confederate presence. To his concern, communicated via an aide, the grizzled redhead replied, There is no enemy closer than Corinth. Tell Appler he can take his damn regiment back to Ohio. Sherman repeated that observation, but in much softer language to Grant that same day. I have no doubt that nothing will occur today more than some picket firing. I do not apprehend anything like an attack on our position. Regardless of Sherman's lack of concern, a colonel, Everett Peabody, sent Major James Powell and three companies of the 25th Missouri to probe to the south around 3 a.m. on Sunday the 6th. Two hours later, they made contact and everyone in Union Blue had a right to be more than concerned, but alarmed. Albert Sidney Johnston was not about to wait for two federal armies to unite. He was going to strike first. On April the 3rd, he issued general orders that included, Soldiers of the Army of the Mississippi, I have put you in motion to offer battle to the invaders of your country. You can but march to a decisive victory over mercenaries sent to subjugate and despoil you of your liberties, property, and honor. Remember the precious stake involved. Remember the dependence of your mothers, your wives, your sisters, and your children on the result. Remember the fair, broad, abounding lands, the happy homes that will be desolated by your defeat. The eyes and hopes of eight million people rest Upon you. With that powerful entreaty, his army moved northward April the 4th. As much as officers tried to make it orderly, it was anything but. It was unruly, loud. So much so that Johnston's second in command, Beauregard, wanted to call the whole attack off. Despite the disorderly advance, despite circumstances that most of his army was green, and was moving through unfamiliar terrain, lacked efficient transportation, and suffered from lack of supplies, organization, and discipline, Johnston blurted, I would attack them if they were a million. On the night of the 5th, a frustrated and concerned Beauregard heard drums. He sent an orderly to stifle the noise. The orderly returned and told him the drums were not in the Confederate camp, but within the Union camp. Beauregard worried the enemy had to know of their presence. Incredibly, he couldn't have been more wrong. On the morning of Sunday, April the 6th, Johnston mounted his bay thoroughbred horse, Fire Eater, and exclaimed to those around, Tonight, we will water our horses in the Tennessee River. A very short distance away, within the unsuspecting Union camp, many still slept. Others, in their messes, prepared breakfast. Only yards away, literally, some 40,000 men were ready to purge their homeland of an invading enemy in blue. Only a few suspected disaster, and one of them was the 31-year-old graduate of Harvard, Colonel Peabody. Outspoken but liked by his men, he commanded Sherman's 1st Brigade. He had a premonition he would not survive the day. And sure enough, in the Confederate tidal wave that was about to roll, he would be one of the first hit. For tens of thousands of Union soldiers, the first hint that something was wrong was this. There was a general stirring to the south. Then suddenly every animal and beast raced northward from woods and across fields into and through the Union encampment, all fleeing before advancing Confederates. To the stampede, befuddled amusement, 
But then it melted into absolute sheer horror as a wall of butternut and gray exploded into view. Like a thunderbolt from a clear sky, Johnston's army had achieved surprise. And now they came on like a tidal wave, in linear formation, each of the three corps stacked one by one behind one another. All but Johnston's reserves attacked. Yet despite the human avalanche, only four of 14 Confederate brigades hit the Union left, which was anchored on the Tennessee River. Johnston wanted to drive the Federal force away from the river, cut them off from avenues of retreat and reinforcement. Yet it seems that Beauregard, who wrote up the battle plan, felt differently. Meanwhile, ten miles downstream, which seemed a spattering of fire, now amplified into a dull, continuous roar. Grant, nursing a painfully swollen ankle, acquired two days earlier in a horseback accident, noted, While I was at breakfast, heavy firing was heard in the direction of Pittsburgh Landing, and I sent a hurried note to Buell informing him of the reason why I could not meet him at Savannah. On the way up the river, I directed the dispatch boat to run in close to Crump's Landing so that I could communicate with General Lew Wallace. I found him waiting on a boat apparently expecting to see me, and I directed him to get his troops in line ready to execute any orders he might receive. He replied that his troops were already under arms and prepared to move. By the time Grant arrived on the field, he found his army pressed all along its front, some two miles. Some men had broken. Some had fled the battlefield and sought the security of the bluffs along the river. Of the now full-blown battle, special war correspondent Junius Henry Brown of the New York Tribune wrote, Hotter and hotter grew the contest. The light of the sun was obscured by the clouds of sulfurous smoke, and the ground became moist and slippery with human gore. Men glared at each other as at wild beasts, and when a shell burst with fatal effect among a crowd of the advancing foe, and arms, legs, and heads were torn off, a grim smile of pleasure lighted up the smoke-begrimed faces of the transformed beings who witnessed the catastrophe. Men with knitted brows and flushed cheeks fought madly over ridges, along ravines, and up steep ascents with blood and perspiration streaming down their faces. Everywhere was mad excitement. Everywhere was horror. Commanders galloped wildly to the front of their regiments and cheered them on, urging their spirited steeds wherever the troops were falling back, careless of their own life, as if they had a million souls to spare. Though surprised men from Iowa, Missouri, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Illinois, men with musket and artillery fire, slowed and made a stand. They stopped the initial advance and forced the Confederates to fall back with heavy losses. That scenario would be repeated all day. Confederate attacks came, but they were thrown in piecemeal. And what success those attacks did have actually created a Union advantage. Southern attacks on both of the flanks of the Union force compressed Union lines. Though the Federal line was bent back on both its flanks, its center increased in depth and number and refused to give way. In the vortex of the fighting, Grant's 6th Division under Benjamin Prentiss and elements of the 2nd and 4th Divisions, some 4,300 survivors who had hunkered down in a one-half-mile-long so-called sunken road made a stand. Somewhere in the midst of that lead-laced hell, Colonel Isaac C. Pugh of the 41st Illinois bellowed, Men, fill your canteens! Some of you will be in hell before night. Grant recapped the crisis and recalled how fortunate he and his army was with the good fortune that embraced one of his division commanders. It was a case of southern dash against northern pluck and endurance. I was continuously engaged in passing from one part of the field to another, giving directions to division commanders. And thus moving along the line, however... 
I never deemed it important to stay long with Sherman. He inspired a confidence in officers and men that enabled them to render services on that bloody battlefield worthy of the best of veterans. A casualty to Sherman that would have taken him from the field that day would have been a sad one for the troops engaged at Shiloh. And how near we came to this. Sherman was shot twice, once in the hand, once in the shoulder, the ball cutting his coat and making a slight wound, and a third ball passed through his hat. In addition to this, he had several horses shot during the day. The fighting in this general area was so desperate that it would forever be known as the hornet's nest. Fleeting scenes reflect the chaos. A wounded Union soldier was told to go to the rear. He did, but returned. Asked why, he blurted, Give me a gun, Captain. This fight ain't got no rear. All around, a universe of confusion. Many of these men, north and south, volunteered in 1861, expecting to revel in the glory of war. There was little glory that terrible day. Here, more fearful snapshots that would stay with men for the rest of their lives. Attesting to the hail of lead, one Federal was found. He had been shot seven times. Grant's 2nd Division Commander W.H.L. Wallace, whose wife was on the way to visit him, was horribly wounded. A bullet struck him behind his left ear and exited out his left eye socket. A Union drummer boy of the 18th Missouri, in great pain, his intestines protruding. A federal chaplain took his penknife, pushed the boy's intestines back inside, told him to have faith in the Lord, and then left him. One unnamed Union captain recalled this unforgettable scene. I saw an intelligent-looking man with his whole diaphragm torn off. He was holding up nearly all of his viscera with both hands and arms. His face expressed a longing for assistance and an apprehension of certain fatality. He continues, After our regiment had been nearly annihilated and we were compelled to retreat under a galling fire, I saw a boy supporting his dying brother on one arm, trying to drag him from the field and the advancing Confederates. He looked at me imploringly and said, Captain, help him, won't you? Do, Captain, he'll live. I said, he's shot through the head, don't you see? He can't live. He's dying now. Oh, no, he ain't, Captain. Don't leave me. I was forced to reply. The rebels won't hurt him. Lay him down and come, or both you and I will be lost. Then the rush of bullets and the yells of the approaching demons hurried me away, leaving the young soldier over his dying brother. Earlier I mentioned Confederate piecemeal attacks. At this portion of the battlefield, the Union Center, the Sunken Road, and Hornet's Nest, some 18,000 Confederates made ten documented charges throughout the day, but never more than 3,700 in any attack. Charging across open fields allowed unobstructed federal fire, and one area that did offer some cover was so thick it broke up Confederate formations. That's why 4,300 Union soldiers from various commands hunkered down behind a slightly sunken road broke wave after wave of attacks. Here, the assessment of Bragg's chief engineer, Colonel Samuel H. Lockett. I witnessed the various bloody and unsuccessful attacks on the hornet's nest. During one of the dreadful repulses of our forces, General Bragg directed me to ride forward to the central regiment of a brigade of troops that was recoiling across an open field and to take its colors and carry them forward. The flag must not go back again, he said. I dashed through the line of battle, seized the colors from the retreating color bearer and said to him, General Bragg says these colors must not go to the rear. While I was talking to him, the color sergeant was shot down. 
A moment or two afterward, I was almost alone on horseback in the open field between the two lines of battle. An officer, Colonel H.W. Allen, later to become governor of Louisiana, came up to me with a bullet hole in each cheek, the blood streaming from his mouth, and asked, What are you doing with my colors, sir? I am obeying General Bragg's orders, sir, to hold them where they are, was my reply. Let me have them. If any man but my color bearer carries these colors, I am the man. But tell General Bragg I will see that these colors are in the right place. He must attack this position in flank. We can never carry it alone from the front. The stubbornness of the Federal Center even compelled the Confederate commander to arrive on the scene. Albert Sidney Johnston rode dangerously forward. Before the 9th Arkansas and 45th Tennessee, he, with tin cup in hand, tapped soldiers' bayonets and calmly remarked, These will do the work, men. They are stubborn. We must use the bayonet. Then he moved to the center of their battle line and, caught up in the moment, exclaimed, I will lead you. Incredibly, the commanding officer of the Confederate Army of the Mississippi led an attack on horseback, albeit unsuccessful. He returned believing he had made the effort without consequence, yet that would not be. It was about two o'clock in the afternoon and Johnston's aide noted with great concern that his general now had grown pale and was reeling in the saddle. He cried, General, are you wounded? Johnston weakly replied, Yes, and I fear seriously. Hit just above the hollow of his right knee, a major artery was severed and he was losing so much blood that his boot filled with his own blood. Calls went out to find his personal surgeon, Dr. D. W. Yandell, but he was away attending to, believe it or not, Union wounded. All that was required was a tourniquet, but no one on the scene knew what to do. And so, at about 2.30 on the afternoon of April the 6th, 1862, the commander of the Confederate Army of the Mississippi, Albert Sidney Johnston, bled to death on the battlefield. Aides now tried to locate P.G.T. Beauregard, who was now in command and who had recently been suffering from a throat infection and also from bronchitis. It took time to locate him. He had been in the rear, funneling in units. While men searched for him, Confederate attacks continued to unsuccessfully hammer the stubborn Federal center. And then, about 4.30 p.m., 52-year-old Confederate Brigadier General Daniel Ruggles, interestingly a Massachusetts native, called for positioning 62 cannon. 62 guns that spanned one-fifth of a mile. Then, the largest concentration of artillery in the history of the Western Hemisphere. When they opened up, they filled the air in front of the sunken road with lethal lead. After the barrage, it was now time for the Confederate infantry, and that included Colonel George E. Maney and the 1st, 9th, and 19th Tennessee. In the middle of a Confederate three-brigade front, and specifically with the 1st Tennessee on left, 9th Tennessee in center, and 19th Tennessee on the right, they moved shoulder to shoulder from the woods out into the peach orchard field and headed for Colonel Isaac Pugh's Union line, which was defended by the 3rd Iowa and 28th Illinois. As they did, the air was filled with sulfurous black powder smoke so much so that both lines could not clearly see the other. Maney ordered his men to the ground, found the enemy from their muzzle flashes, waited for them to fire a volley, then ordered his men to their feet and forward. 
They took losses, but tore into Pew's Union line, and with its right threatened, Pew's men had to fall back, as did that section of the Union defensive line. That, along with Confederate attacks on the other Union flank, its right, meant that around 5.30 in that afternoon, the stubborn Union center was surrounded. And finally, after hours of determined defense, Benjamin Prentiss surrendered some 2,200 of his command. For the Confederates, it was a costly victory, as Bragg's engineer, Colonel S.H. Lockett, noted. It was a dear triumph to us, dear for the many soldiers we had lost in the first fruitless attacks, but still dearer on account of the valuable time it cost us with the day fast waning. The time consumed in gathering Prentice's command together and taking their arms and marching them to the rear was incredibly valuable. Not only that, the news of the capture spread and grew as it spread. Many soldiers and officers believed we had captured the bulk of the Federal Army, and hundreds left their positions and came to see the captured Yanks. With little sunlight left, Beauregard, around 6 p.m., suspended Confederate activity for the day. It had been a bloody one, and Whitelaw Reed, a reporter from the Cincinnati Gazette, assessed the day. We have lost nearly all our camps and camp equipage. We have lost nearly half our field artillery. We have lost a division general and two or three regiments of our soldiers as prisoners. We have lost dreadfully and killed and wounded. The hospitals are full to overflowing. And our men are discouraged by prolonged defeat. Nothing but the most energetic exertion on the part of the officers prevents them from becoming demoralized. There was one Union officer who was not demoralized, and that was Ulysses S. Grant, who, in the rear at the landing, had put together a formidable last stand. That evening, across the way, flushed with what he truly believed had been an incredible but costly success, Beauregard sent a victory telegram to Richmond, then bedded down where Sherman slept the night before. However, if he knew what was happening back at the landing, he would have been unable to sleep. One exhausted soldier who was near the river, Private Leander Stilwell of the 61st Illinois, noted a fortuitous event. As we were lying there, I heard the strains of martial music and saw a body of men marching up the road. I slipped out of rank and walked out to the side of the road to see what troops there were. Their band was playing Dixie's Land. The men were marching at a quick step. I saw that they had not been in a fight, for there was no powder smoke on their faces. What regiment is this? I asked of a young sergeant marching on the flank. Back came the answer in a quick, cheery tone. The 36th Indiana, the advance guard of Buell's army. I gave one big gasping swallow, and the blood thumped in the veins of my throat, and my heart fairly pounded against my little infantry jacket in the joyous rapture of this glorious intelligence. Indeed, around 5 to 6 p.m., about the time Benjamin Prentiss surrendered his force in the Union Center, Don Carlos Buell's 25,000-man army of the Ohio began to arrive and cross the river to the West Bank. The timing of its arrival could not have been better. Night brought to a close what had been a most unholy Sabbath, as Union Colonel Wills de Haas noted. The Sabbath closed upon a scene which had no parallel on the western continent. Night fell upon and spread its funereal pall all over. A field of blood where death held unrestrained carnival. Soon after dark, the rain descended in torrents, and all through the dreary hours of that dismal night it rained unceasingly. The groans of the dying 
and the solemn thunder of the gunboats out in the river as they threw their heavy missiles toward the Confederate lines came swelling at intervals high above the pelting of the pitiless storm. For William Sherman, whose division had been one of the first overrun, he was lucky to be alive. In addition to having three horses shot out from under him, as Grant had noted earlier, he had been shot through the palm of his right hand and had suffered another slight wound in his shoulder. That night it rained most terribly, and finding Grant in the driving deluge that fell that night, Sherman quipped, We've had the devil's own day, haven't we? But Grant answered, Yes, lick him tomorrow. Though optimistic, the Union commander had a most miserable night. I made my headquarters under a tree a few hundred yards back from the riverbank. My ankle was so much swollen and the bruise was so painful that I could get no rest. The drenching rain would have precluded the possibility of sleep without this additional cause. Some time after midnight, growing restive under the storm and the continuous pain, I moved back to the log house under the bank. This had been taken as a hospital, and all night wounded men were being brought in, their wounds dressed, a leg or an arm amputated, as the case might require, and everything being done to save life or alleviate suffering. The sight was unendurable, and I returned to my tree in the rain. Across the way, one Confederate officer was not content to wait for the next day. During the night, Colonel Nathan Bedford Forrest disguised his men in captured Federal overcoats and moved forward on the Union left to reconnoiter. What he saw chilled him to the bone, for he saw Buell's men unloading in great numbers on the West Bank. With that information, he raced to find Beauregard, but was unable to do so. Instead, he found Corps Commanders William Hardy and Braxton Bragg, both who dismissed his report. Forrest was so angry that one of his aides said he was so mad he stunk. To both he spat out, we will be whipped like hell tomorrow. Despite the rain that night, Southern discipline seemed to disappear, as Southern historian Edward Pollard described. With the exception of a few thousand disciplined troops, the whole army degenerated into bands of roving plunderers, intoxicated with victory, and scattered in a shameful hunt for the rich spoils of the battlefield. All during the night, thousands were out in quest of plunder. Hundreds were intoxicated with wines and liquors found, and scenes of disorder and shouts of revelry arose around the large fires which had been kindled and mingled with the groans of the wounded. The next day, Monday, April 7th, Beauregard and his army began the day with what they believed would be mop-up attacks, but found there was an unanticipated strength within the Union lines. About six o'clock, a hot fire of musketry and artillery opened from the enemy's quarter on our advanced line, assured me of the junction of his forces. And soon the battle raged with a fury which satisfied me. I was attacked by a largely superior force. But from the onset, our troops, notwithstanding their fatigue and losses from the battle of the day before, exhibited the most cheering, veteran-like steadiness. Again and again, our troops were brought to the charge, invariably to drive back their foe. But, opposed to an enemy constantly reinforced, our ranks were perceptibly thinned under the unceasing, withering fire. And that Union strength flexed its muscles for the rest of the day. Grant's simple orders for the day were to advance and recapture our original camps. And so, seven divisions, some 45,000 men hit 20 to 25,000 around 8 a.m. 
soon. Grant and Buell's combined attacks began to drive the tactically and psychologically outmanned Confederates back over the same ground that had been contested the day before. And that presented some never-forgotten nightmarish images. One unnamed Union captain wrote, Our regiment strode on over wounded, dying, and dead. I had an opportunity to notice incidents about the field. The regiment halted amidst a gory, ghastly scene. I heard a voice calling, Ho, friend, ho! For God's sake, come here! I went to a gory pile of dead human forms in every kind of stiff contortion. I saw one arm raised, beckoning me. I found there a rebel, covered with clotted blood, pillowing his head on the dead body of a comrade. Both were red from head to foot. The dead man's brains had gushed out in a reddish and grayish mass over his face. The live one had lain across him all that horrible long night in the storm. The first thing he said to me was, Give me some water. Send me a surgeon, won't you? Oh, God, what made you come down here to fight us? We never would have come up there. I filled his canteen nearly, reserving some for myself. I told him we had no surgeon in our regiment, that other regiments were coming and to call on them for a surgeon. Forward, shouted my colonel, and I left him. Later, I ate my dinner within six paces of a rebel in four pieces. Both legs were blown off. His pelvis was the third piece, and his head and chest were the fourth. I saw five dead rebels in a row, with their heads knocked off by round shot. Myself and other amateur anatomists, when the regiment was resting temporarily on arms, well, we would examine the internal structure of man. We would examine brains, heart, stomach, layers of muscle, structure of bones, etc., for there was every form of mutilation. At home, I used to wince at the sight of a wound or of a corpse. But here in one day, I learned to be among the scenes I am describing without any emotion. The reinforced federal push and relentless pressure was telling, and by mid-afternoon, Beauregard knew he had to embrace reality, as his adjutant general Thomas Jordan recalled. Our losses were swelling perilously, and the straggling was growing more difficult to restrain. A little after two o'clock, Governor Isham G. Harris of Tennessee, taking me aside, asked whether there was not danger in tarrying so long in the field as to be unable to withdraw in good order. Having an opportunity a moment later to speak to General Beauregard in private, I brought the subject before him. General, do you not think our troops are very much in the condition of a lump of sugar, thoroughly soaked with water, but yet preserving its original shape, though ready to dissolve? Would it not be judicious to get away with what we have? Indeed, Beauregard made the only order he felt he could make, withdrawal. Officers of my staff were immediately dispatched with the necessary orders to make the best disposition for a deliberate, orderly withdrawal from the field, and to collect and post a reserve to meet the enemy should he attempt to push after us. And so around 2.30, orders to disengage went out. Given the incredible number of Union casualties, there was no concentrated, vigorous Union pursuit until the next morning. But back at the bloodied battlefield, U.S. Grant gave a sobering observation indicative of the violence over the last two days. I saw an open field over which the Confederates had made repeated charges the day before, so covered with dead that it would have been possible to walk across in any direction, stepping on dead bodies without a foot touching the ground. 
Walking about the carnage was a brigadier general in charge of the 20th Brigade in Buell's 6th Division. The future President of the United States, James A. Garfield, wrote to his wife, The horrible sights that I have witnessed on the field I can never describe. No blaze of glory that flashes around the magnificent triumphs of war can even atone for the unwritten and unutterable horrors of the scene of carnage. After two days of fighting, Union losses were staggering. 1,754 killed, 8,408 wounded, and 2,885 captured or reported missing. Total, 13,047. Johnston and Beauregard's Confederate force brought to the field some 43,000 men. 1,728 were killed, 8,012 wounded. 959 either captured or missing, a total of 10,699 casualties. Together, in two days, 23,746 casualties. More than the War for Independence, War of 1812, and the Mexican War combined. The then two bloodiest days in the history of the Western Hemisphere. In April of 1862, after two days of bloodletting, Whitelaw Reed of the Cincinnati Gazette summed it up all too succinctly in five simple phrases. The camps were regained. The rebels were repulsed. Their attack had failed. We stood where we began. And so ended the battle. For the Confederates who had lost their commanding officer, retreat back to Corinth was made worse when temperatures dropped and defeated officers and men made their way back under heavens that opened with cold, drizzling rain and hail. Confederate Lieutenant William G. Stevenson described the horrible night of the retreat that April the 7th. I saw more of human agony and woe that I trust I will ever again be called on to witness. The retreating host wound along a narrow and almost impassable road. Here was a long line of wagons loaded with wounded, piled in like bags of grain, groaning and cursing, while the mules plunged on in mud and water. Next came a straggling regiment of infantry, pressing on past the train of wagons, then a stretcher borne upon the shoulders of four men carrying a wounded officer, then soldiers staggering along with an arm broken and hanging down or other fearful wounds. And to add to the horrors of the scene, the elements of heaven marshaled their forces. A cold, drizzling rain commenced about nightfall, and soon came harder and faster, then turned to pitiless, blinding hell. I passed long wagon trains filled with wounded and dying soldiers, without even a blanket to shield them. Some 300 men died during that awful retreat. Some 760 miles east in Richmond, in the southern capital, despite Beauregard's claim of victory, Eventually, the truth arrived, and it began to sink in. For the Confederacy, ominous realities. The Confederate Army had not reclaimed the Mississippi Valley. It had not reclaimed Tennessee. The balance of power in the West was not restored. Davis's military advisor, Robert E. Lee, had counseled earlier that if the Mississippi Valley was lost... The Atlantic states would be ruined, a prophetic, sobering reality. And there were consequences for individuals after the fight at Pittsburgh Landing or Shiloh. For the first time in his Civil War career, P.G.T. Beauregard's reputation was tarnished. His telegram claiming victory made him the target of popular criticism, even ridicule. 
and even the battered victors could not escape criticism. William Sherman was attacked by soldier and civilian alike. Why, after so many warnings, had he continued to ignore the possibility that Johnston's Confederates might be in the area, might just attack? A few years later, before the Joint Committee on the Conduct of the War, Sherman was questioned and asked to discuss his military career. He passed hurriedly over experiences that included his role at Bull Run in Kentucky and particularly at Shiloh. Instead, he rushed to discuss in detail his drive upon Atlanta. He explained his rushing over the earlier years, well, was an effort to save the committee from, as he put it, consuming an inordinate amount of their time. His commander, U.S. Grant, was grilled by even more Western governors who read the casualty list of constituents from their states wanted to know why he had been surprised at Shiloh. Why had he made no effort to do reconnaissance? His own soldiers spoke of his imbecile character. Many call the whole affair one of blundering stupidity. His action nothing short of criminal carelessness. His department commander, Major General Henry Halleck, arrived on the field April the 11th and assumed command. He would then lead a glacial advance on Corinth, which had by now become one massive hospital filled with Confederate sick and wounded and racked by dwindling water supplies, typhoid and dysentery. Grant, for the second time in the last two months, thought about resigning his commission. But Sherman came to his rescue. He talked him out of it. A powerful bond was being created, one that would bear fruit later. Shiloh, despite its horrendous casualties, a Union victory. Southern forces retreated. Union forces held the field and strategic advantage. And that strategic advantage improved almost immediately when word came with the fall of Island Number 10 on the Mississippi, only a few hours after the guns of Shiloh fell silent. And that meant that Western Tennessee and Memphis were vulnerable. And then, one more consequence from the bloodletting at Shiloh. One from a man who was capable and equally determined lieutenants, all began to formulate the full measures of what war meant, what war required. In Ulysses S. Grant's own words, Up to the Battle of Shiloh, I, as well as thousands of other citizens, believed that the rebellion against the government would collapse suddenly, and soon, if a decisive victory could be gained over any of its armies. Donaldson and Henry were such victories. But when shortly afterward, Confederate armies were collected, which not only attempted to hold a line farther south, but assumed the offensive and made such a gallant effort to regain what had been lost, then indeed, I gave up all idea of saving the Union except by complete conquest. Chilling words. One that two years later meant destruction for southern locales like Atlanta, Georgia, the Shenandoah Valley, and the Carolinas. Again, Robert E. Lee's sobering assessment. If the Mississippi Valley was lost, the Atlantic states will be ruined. Shiloh shocked both North and South. But down in Dixie, it was Southern writer and poet George Washington Cable, who probably best captured with the fighting around Pittsburgh landing truly meant for the Confederacy. After Shiloh, the South never smiled again. When we next gather, we'll tell the story of a momentous clash in 
D, The Clash of Titans, Robert E. Lee, and Ulysses S. Grant. We'll take you to Central Virginia, where in May of 1864, the two and their armies locked horns in desperate battle. I hope you'll join us as we tell the story of their first head-to-head encounter, the Battle of the Wilderness. This is Fred Kiger. Thank you for listening.